How y'all doing? Anybody excited about starting back to school? Y'all are lying. That's people that don't teach or are not in school anymore. That's parents that are getting ready to send their kids out of the house, and they're like, yes, we can get this place back to ourselves. So, uh, hey, uh, glad you're here today. Let me let you know about something happening this afternoon, just um, in case you hadn't heard about it or forgotten or whatever. Uh, back to School Bash happens this afternoon, uh, this evening, starting at 6 o'clock. We do that at Century Bee Park. That's right behind Kids Planet in Greer. Um, and we're going to have an opportunity to make an impact on a lot of kids that are going back to school. We've got about 600, isn't that right, Donnie, 600 backpacks we're going to give out just uh, completely free to people who need those and got some school supplies, too, that they can put in those packs. And, uh, and one thing we're doing a little different this year, just so you'll know, we're going to take some of the school supplies and we're going to give them to two schools that are really high-need schools, uh, schools with a lot of, um, where very high percentage of free lunch kids um, so we figured that would be a good place to send school supplies so that those teachers can get those into the hands of the kids who need them most. But this afternoon, from 6 to 8, is Back to School Bash. If you've already signed up to help, you should know what you're doing. If for some reason you haven't received an email and you know you signed up to help, we've heard a couple people didn't get that email uh, for different reasons that we're not sure of. The uh, information table right in the middle of the atrium there, Tamara Whitener will be there after the service, and you can go to her. She can tell you exactly what you're supposed to do, exactly what time you're supposed to be there. And, uh, and then also, if you didn't sign up to help, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'd like to help, you just come show up. You can get there about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, and uh, we'll put you to work doing something. There will be, or you can come at, at 6 and plan to stay till 9 after it's over, and we'll get you to put to work doing something after it's over. But there's plenty to be done, and, and just want you, uh, want you to know about that. So glad you're here today. We're continuing the series that we began last week. Uh, we began a new series last week called Home Away From Home. And just talking about the fact that, you know, as humans, we have this great desire for home and, and, uh, and we, we want to be there. We like to make a home base and, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but a lot of times as we read through Scripture, we will see that, um, especially in the Old Testament, most of the, our, our, our scriptural heroes in the Old Testament, they didn't have a home the way we think of home. In fact, most of the time, a lot of the time, uh, they, were, they were homeless. In fact, even Jesus said uh, in, in Luke 9, 58, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So whether you knew it or not, if you've given your life to Jesus, you're following the teachings and following the example of a homeless guy. Because Jesus said, I don't even have a home of my own. I just go from here to there, and maybe somebody will take me in and let me sleep there. But, uh, but Jesus didn't have a home base. He hadn't built a nice house in a neighborhood like we like to do. And, uh, and so many times in Scripture we read about that, and we see where folks there did not have homes the way we do. And I'm not encouraging us during this series of messages to go sell our houses and live on the streets. But what I am doing is I think there's a lot of key messages that we can learn from reading about these folks who didn't have the benefit of having a home like we do. And so what I want you to do today, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 29 if you've got your Bibles. We'll put the scripture on the screen in a little bit, but I want you to go ahead and get ready. Genesis chapter 29. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible. Go ahead and turn there. And we're going we're gonna to talk today about a guy named Jacob. And, and we're going to talk about the fact that one of the things Jacob had to learn is that Jacob had to learn that home is where you serve. Home is where you serve. 
And, and, and it's interesting, the story of Jacob is real interesting, but before we, before we read it, let me give you a little biographical information, a little background information on Jacob, just so you'll kind of know who we're talking about. Jacob, uh, Jacob was the son uh, of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, you'll know, you might remember Isaac was the son of Abraham. So last week we talked about Abraham. You remember we talked about him having to leave and live in a tent his whole life and all that kind of stuff, and that Abraham learned that, that a home is where God sends you. Well, Jacob is Abraham's grandson. And, and um, Isaac, who was Jacob's dad, you might remember that Isaac was the child that was born to Abraham and Sarah when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was in her 90s. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of an abnormal thing. You know, we used to have a senator in South Carolina before he died named Strom Thurmond, and he made babies up till like he was in his 70s. But, uh, but he didn't even make a baby when he was 100. When he was 100, he was still a senator, but he wasn't making babies by then, right? But Abraham, Abraham and Sarah, they had a baby when he was 100 years old. And so this baby that, that was born is named Isaac, and you know that he was known as the child of the promise because God had promised him, listen, you're going to have a child, and Abraham didn't believe it, and, and then he comes along. And so now Jacob is Isaac's son. And, and so Jacob is very important in carrying on the line that began with Abraham, that went to Isaac, and then is going to go all the way to Jesus. So Jacob is an important part of that. Now one other thing you need to know about Jacob is he had a twin brother had a twin brother named Esau. And, you know, it's funny to me, biblical names, a lot of, I know a lot, of, in fact, I have a nephew named Jacob, and you probably know a lot of na- people named Jacob. I don't know anybody named Esau, and uh, some of those biblical names just didn't quite catch on like others did. I don't know any Methuselahs either, but, uh, but I do know a lot of Jacobs. And so Jacob had this twin brother named Esau, and Esau was the older of the two, just by a few seconds, but still older nonetheless, and, uh, and Jacob and Esau, they didn't have the best relationship. In fact, they had a really pretty rough relationship. And it was all due to Jacob. Because Jacob did a lot of deceptive things. He did a lot of things to Esau that no one should ever do. And so, in fact, when we read in this scripture in Genesis 29, when I get ready to read this, where, where we start reading, Jacob is now on the run. He's left home. And so he's homeless, just like the people we're talking about this whole month. He's left home, and, and he's on the run from his brother Esau. And he's gone to the, his, uncle's, his uncle's land. His uncle was named Laban. And Laban had land, and, and his, his mother, Rachel, told, told Jacob, said, go to my brother's household. He'll give you a job once he knows who you are. And so go take off. So Jacob's on the run, and he shows up, and he gets there to where Laban's people live. And then look at Genesis 29, starting with verse 14. I'm going to start at the second half of verse 14 and read to verse 30 and talk to you a little bit about it as we go. So follow along while I read this. It says, After Jacob stayed with him, talking about this is Laban, he'd been at Laban's house for a while. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Now I love these descriptions of these girls here. Leah's probably not very happy about this description, but it goes like this. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form, you know what that means, and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Laban is the daughter of Jacob's uncle, who is the brother of Jacob's mom. So that means Rachel and Jacob are first cousins. And Jacob wants to marry his first cousin. Now, some of you who grew up in Pickens County, you're like, hey, that's really not that abnormal, you know. You know, you're sitting here thinking, I always went to the family reunion to find my prom date. I know that's what you're thinking. But for most people, you don't marry your first cousin, right? But back in the biblical times, in Old Testament, it was not uncommon. And one reason was because there wasn't that many other folks around. You, you grew up in this kind of clan, and you were pretty much related to everybody, and you married within that clan. And so this was not an uncommon thing for him to go and, and want to marry his cousin. Now, I think it's interesting, if you haven't read the first part of Genesis 29, you're saying, how was he in love with Rachel? Because he had pretty much just met her. But when he showed up into town, when Jacob showed up into town, Rachel was out at this well, and there's a story of the, going on where Rachel was having some problems with these guys, and, and Jacob pretty much came to her rescue, and so he had spotted her. And the Scripture says she was lovely in form, and so that had caught his eye. And he had his eye on this girl, and now he'd been working for a while, and he'd probably been watching her from a distance. So when Jacob said, when uh, Laban says to him, listen, what should your wages be? He says, I'll take that one right there. I'll take Rachel. She's lovely in form. I don't want that weak-eyed girl, Leah. I want Rachel. All right? Let me marry her. So look at, look at as the story continues. Verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed, and I want to lie with her. Jacob, just, he just cuts right to the chase, doesn't he? And so then verse 22, so Laban brought together all the people of the, of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, now check this out, he took his daughter Leah, Remember old weak-eyed Leah? And gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl, girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, I love how this is written in the Scripture because it's got an exclamation point. When morning came, there was Leah. And so it's kind of, you know, Jacob wakes up in the morning, and he's like, whew, man, it rolls over. He's going to give his new wife a kiss, and he's like, whoa, what are, who are you? How'd this weak-eyed girl get into bed with me, right? And I know you're thinking as you read that, because I, I remember the first time I probably read, read, read this story, I was probably in high school, and I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, you mean to tell me this girl, and you know, I had not been married at that time, but I thought, surely if some stranger gets in my bed and I'm going to do what they did, I'm going to know if it's the right girl or not, you know? But you got to remember a couple things. One is, Jacob and Rachel hadn't dated the way people date today. They, it was, this was an arranged marriage, and he had never really had any conversation with her other than that conversation that happened at the well back at the beginning of Genesis 29. And so she was just this girl that lived in the same area that he got to look at from a distance. He didn't really have any conversations with her. When Leah came in, the tradition was that she would have been wearing a veil, and the tradition also was that you didn't do what they did with the lights on, all right? You had, everything had to be dark. And then don't forget, alcohol was involved. <laughs> there was this big feast, and Jacob, I'm sure, had thrown a few back, right? And so some of you that are always want to like say, Cliff, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with alcohol. You're right, it doesn't. But you might end up in a situation like this if you drink too much of it. 
So y'all better be careful out there, all right? And so Jacob wakes up with the wrong woman in bed with him. Now check out what happens after this. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. So here's this, this story, which to us today is pretty weird. I mean, you got cousins marrying each other. you got people getting married more than one time in a week. you got, you know, people showing up in the honeymoon suite that aren't supposed to be there. And it's just this crazy kind of story. But I think there's some lessons that we can learn. I mean, think about Jacob for a minute. He has no home. He's fled home because he's had this fight with his brother that we're going to talk about in a minute. And, and he goes to live with his uncle, and he's been there for a while, and his uncle tells him, okay, listen, you're, you're going to be able to have your own place. You're, you're pretty much going to be set free from my service. After seven years, you're going to then have a wife. You're going to be able to establish your own home. And so Jacob works towards that. He's looking forward to that. And then suddenly seven years doubles to 14 years, and now he's having to serve another seven years, which is very different than the first seven, and, and it just had to be a terrible situation for Jacob to be in. And I'm sure he probably thought a lot of times, I'd have been better off if I'd have stayed at home and dealt with my angry brother than having to do this. Serving 14 years, and now i got one wife that I don't even want, and i got to serve another seven years to get the wife that I really do want. And it was just a weird, bad situation. But there's, it's interesting as you read the Scripture, there's the, the, the 14 years is divided up into two sevens. And the two seven years uh, stretches are very different. In the first one, we can learn uh, uh, one lesson. In the second one, we can learn another. The first thing I think we can learn from the first seven years is this. Home is where you serve when the service is easy. Home is where you serve when the service is easy. Now, the reason I think it's important for us to think about the fact that home is where you serve is that 99.9% .9 of you here today, you have to work. To, to survive on this earth. I mean, very few of you are here, maybe none of you here, are independently wealthy where you get up in the morning, it doesn't matter if you go to work or not. Just about every single person here, if you're going to survive on the face of this earth, you've got to serve, you've got to work. And even if you own your own business, you're serving other people because you're working for the customer. And so when we start thinking about the life of Jacob, talking about home is where you serve, there's some times for us that maybe the service is easy. And it's okay then, and, and sometimes it really feels like work can be home. Where we serve can feel like home when the service is easy. Now think about the life of Jacob here for a minute. He served this place at least 14 years that we know of. Now he had been there for a little while before the first seven years started to count. And, and so for the whole 14 years, the first seven and the second seven, he was doing probably the same tasks in the same place 
working for the same guy, for his uncle Laban. He was working with the same people. And, and so, so it, you know, there was a lot of the stuff that was the same. But the two seven-year times are very different. Look at the first, look at Genesis 29, 20 again. What it says about the first seven years. It says this, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now you've heard the, the saying, time flies when you're having fun. I don't know if what Jacob was doing really he considered fun, but for him the time was flying because he was motivated. He knew why he was there. He, he had a purpose for working those first seven years. And, and so maybe wherever your work situation is, where you serve, maybe for you there are times when, when you're motivated, you've got a purpose while you're there, you, you're doing it and you think to yourself, and maybe you've even said to yourself out loud, you know what, I would do this for free. And some of you are like, Cliff, you don't know where I work. I wouldn't do that. I don't even want to do that to get paid, much less for free. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes when you work at a place, you can have just a day that's so good that you thought, man, I would have gone in and done that today for nothing because the service today was easy. It was like the time flew by. And that's the way Jacob was those first seven years. He was, he was in love with Rachel. He had spotted her. That's who he wanted. And he knew, if I can do these seven years... I can, I can get this done and, and, and it'll, it'll be a good thing. And so he was motivated and it said the time was flying by for him. And I think another reason why the first seven years was good for Jacob is that Jacob learned a vital lesson those first seven years that maybe we, you've learned in your life or maybe if you're younger you're still trying to learn this. And that is that, that Jacob was learning for the first time that it's good to have to work for something. Jacob had never worked for anything in his life. In fact, up to this point, Jacob's mode of operation was to cheat people to get what he wanted. And, and, and if, if he saw something he wanted, he would come up with a plan of how he was going to get it. And it didn't matter if that plan was moral or immoral. He was going to do what it took to get what he wanted. But what he wasn't going to do to get what he wanted was to work for that. But now things were different. Because when he shows up at his uncle Laban's place, he doesn't have anything. He's a man without a house. He's a man without uh, uh, food. All he's got is the clothes on his back. We don't even know if, if, if he had like any livestock or anything. It's, it's pretty much he was on his own with a, a, a staff to walk with and some sandals, and he's walking. And he gets to Laban's place, and he doesn't have a thing. And so if he wants to marry his cousin Rachel... He's going to have to work for it. See, back in those days, if you wanted to marry somebody, you had to pay for the bride. And me, as a father of two daughters, I think that needs to be instituted again into American culture. You know, like, oh, you want to marry my daughter Emily? Okay, that'll be a house at the beach and a new car. You know, you give that to me or, or whatever. And um, Emily, you're way more than worth just a house at the beach, though, honey. Maybe two houses at the beach would be even better. One for you and one for me. But so, so when he shows up, the, the tradition was that, is that he was going to have to give something in order to get Rachel, but he had nothing to give. He had no livestock. He had no gold. And so in order for him to get what he wanted, he was going to have to work. And for the first time in Jacob's life, he began to learn that there's great satisfaction in working for something. There's great satisfaction 
in earning something. Instead of just having it given to you, there's great satisfaction that you worked hard, you did a job, and you get fulfillment from the fact that at the end of that job, you get your payment, which for him was going to be this this, uh, beautiful cousin of his, Rachel. And, And see, where you work, wherever it might be, whether it's in a factory or, or at a school if you're a teacher or, or if you're a student and you're in school or, or it's on a job site, a construction site, or if you work out of your house or in a big office building, whatever, it doesn't matter wherever you work. You, the, the ease of your work is going to be in direct proportion to your understanding of your purpose for working. Now let me say that again. The ease of your work is going to be in direct proportion to your understanding your purpose working. In other words, if you know what your purpose is and you go every day and you're motivated and and, and that's your purpose is to show up and to do this job and you're motivated for that, you're going to find that that job is easier to do because you're motivated to do it day after day. So the ease of your work is in direct proportion to your motivation for working there. And that's exactly what Jacob figured out. Now, maybe you're thinking, um, hey, Cliff, I don't really have much motivation for where I work. And let me tell you what, the, what the, the motivation that will not make your work easier. If you're motivated to work just to get a paycheck, that won't help your work get any easier. Let me tell you why that won't work. Because you're always thinking you can get a better paycheck somewhere else. And so if you're working at this location and it's difficult and you're thinking, I need to figure out what my motivation here is. Oh, yeah, my motivation is every two weeks they put money into my bank account. That's my motivation. But that, that motivation will not make your work easier because what's going to happen is whatever they put into your bank account every two weeks, after the taxes get taken off the top of that, then it's almost cut in half. And then after you pay your bills, and then you're going to start saying, you know what, my motivation would be better if I was working somewhere else where I was making $25,000 more a year. And so no, you're no longer motivated and your ease of work there is, is, not, is non-existent because you think you can get it somewhere else, get something more somewhere else. Let me tell you today, now listen, if you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. Let me tell you today what your motivation should be where you work. And it's the truth, it's true for me, it's true for you. It doesn't matter where you work. I don't even know where most of you work. But, but I'm going to tell you what your motivation should be for where you work. And this will help the place that you work become a more easy place to be. And it'll help the time to fly more if you have a motivation, if you have a purpose in your work. And the purpose, the motivation for your work, wherever it is that you work, should be for you to bring God glory in that place. If you can glorify God every day, and that's your motivation. It's not to get a paycheck. It's not to try to climb the corporate ladder. Not that getting a paycheck is bad. And not that climbing the corporate ladder is bad, but if that's your only motivation, that motivation is going to die out eventually. The motivation that will never die out is if you say to yourself, where I go to work today or where I go to school today, my motivation is to bring God glory in that place by, the, by my actions, by my attitude, by my words. 
and that I'm going to give my absolute best that I can give in that place of service. I'm going to make that place of service my home, and I'm going to give my absolute best there. I'm going to give my best in the, the jobs that seem to be real important, and I'm going to give my best in the jobs that seem to be real insignificant. I'm going to give my best when the boss is there watching over my shoulder. I'm going to give my best when my boss is on vacation out of the country and he or she has no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to give my best in every situation to bring God the maximum amount of glory that I can. And if that will become your purpose, that will become your motivation, then that will make the ease of your work begin to increase. Because the ease of your work is going to increase in direct proportion to your understanding your purpose for working there. See, Jacob was beginning to learn that. Now, Jacob wasn't exactly trying to glorify God. Jacob was more looking at, I got to get this woman right here. And he had seven years to do it. Now, what happened in the next seven years? Well, the second seven years were a little bit different for Jacob. He had finally, he had finally uh, gotten the woman that he was supposed to get, but now he had been tricked, and so he had seven more years to serve. In the second seven years, Jacob learned some very important stuff as well. Jacob learned in the second seven years that, that home is where you serve when the service is difficult. See, the first seven years were easy. Now, the second seven years is more difficult. Genesis 29, 30, it just says, remember the first seven years, it says Jacob worked and it seemed like just a few days. 29, 30, it just ends with this. And he worked for Laban another seven years. No joy in that. It doesn't say time flew by. No, it doesn't say time crawled either. But you know that it, he counted down every single day of those seven. And he knew, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I've gotten cheated. This is, this is, not, a, this is not a good thing. Maybe you've been at, at work before, and that same job that had been fun, that same job that had been a place you looked forward to going to, maybe there was a change in management, change in ownership, or maybe just a policy change. They did away with casual Friday or something. And, and now, you know, you're like, I hate this place. I don't want to go to this place at all, you know. And everything that had been so good... Now it's so bad, and, and, and nothing else has changed. See, that's what's interesting in Jacob's situation. Nothing else had changed. He was doing the same jobs. He was working at the same place. He was working for the same man, but the big difference now was his motivation. There had been this big change in his heart that I'm not even supposed to be here. I've already worked my seven years. I've got Rachel. Why don't I just get out of here? But he had to agree to work another seven years. But the, I think the most important lesson that Jacob learned the second seven years is a lesson that's hard for us to learn. And I'm going to talk about this for the next few minutes, and some of you are going to get a little uncomfortable as I talk about this. And you need to know that, that as I was preparing this message and I was reading the Scripture and I was studying and God started sending me in this direction, it, it brought back bad memories of, of my past and, and, and things that are going on. And I thought to myself, ooh, I don't even know if I want to talk about that. But here's the, here's the message, the, the second thing that Jacob began to learn in this, uh, this second seven years. Well, let me tell you a story first so that you'll know why he learned this. You remember I told you before that, um, that Jacob was on the run? That's the reason he was at Laban's place to begin with? In Genesis 29, 25, look at what Jacob said to his uncle Laban when he found out he'd been tricked. He says, I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you said this next word with me out loud? Why have you deceived me? Well, there was this story that happened 
And the reason that Jacob was at Laban's place to begin with is he had this twin brother named Esau, older by just a few seconds, but very different than Jacob. Esau was a man's man. He was an outdoors guy. Scripture says he was hairy and that Jacob was very smooth-skinned like a little girl, right? So all you hairy guys, you know, good for you, right? Ben, this makes you feel good. And so Jacob and, Jacob and Esau, you know, twin brothers, they should get along and all that kind of stuff. But all his life, Jacob and Esau never really did things together. They never really saw things eye to eye. And, and in Isaac, the, the dad was Isaac. In Isaac's last days, Isaac's dying, he's old. Scripture says that he was losing his eyesight. Well, back in those days, the father would bestow upon the son, the oldest son, the blessing of the family. And to us, it's kind of a strange thing. It doesn't make much sense to us because we believe, and, and we believe Scripture teaches, that you can bless all kind of people. You can bless all your kids. But back in those days, they didn't have the understanding of God that we do at this time. And so Jake, uh, Isaac believed that he had one blessing to give out. That was all he believed he had to give out. And the tradition was you gave it to the oldest son. Well, now Jacob and Jacob's mother, Rachel, uh, not Rachel, uh, Rebecca, Jacob and Jacob's mother, Rebecca, they came up with this plan that they were going to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And so they came up with this plan. Isaac's blind. Jacob dresses up, puts, puts goat skin so it would be hairy on his arms and covers himself with outdoor smells and all this stuff. And he comes in and he makes Isaac believe that he is his older brother Esau. And Isaac even at one point says, you sound like Jacob. And Jacob's like, well, I'm Esau. Believe me, you know, I'm not lying to you. It's me, all this kind of stuff. And so Isaac gives him the blessing. Well, in just a few moments, Esau shows up, and when he starts talking to his dad, he realizes what's going on, and the scripture talks about it. It's like a wailing from Esau. He's screaming out, crying, don't you have another blessing you can give me? And then it says in Genesis 27, 35, now notice the same word that's used here. Isaac says, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Now, what was it that Jacob said to Laban? Why have you, what? Deceived me. And then, how did Jacob get the blessing instead of Esau? He deceived his father. Your brother came deceitfully and took the blessing. Now, this is the, the lesson that Jacob learned that sometimes will make us uncomfortable. But Jacob learned that when a man reaps something, sows something, he will reap the same thing. That when you sow seeds of deception you're going to reap seeds of deception in your life. When you sow seeds of selfishness, you're going to reap seeds of selfishness in your life. When you sow seeds of anger and bitterness, you're going to reap seeds of anger and bitterness in your life. When you sow seeds of gossip, you're going to reap seeds of gossip in your life. And that's something we don't like to talk about. But Jacob learned it to be true. All his life, he had been a deceiver. It says even that when he came out of the womb, that he had grabbed onto his brother's heel when he came out of the room. And that's what the name Jacob means, is it means heel grabber. It means someone who is taking advantage of other people around them. I'm sorry, Jacob, that your name means that. Jacob, who plays in the band this morning, but uh, we know you're not that way, all right? 
But, but it means, that's, that's, it's, it's the, that's the whole meaning behind the name. And so his whole life, he had been a deceiver. He had always cheated people. If he found a way that he could get something that he wanted, he would cheat someone out of it. And now for the first time in his life, he's understanding that, oh, I cheated other people and now I've been cheated. I deceived my daddy and now my uncle has deceived me. He was learning the hard lesson for all of us to learn that when you sow something, you're going to reap it in return. And he had seven years to think about that. He had seven years to work for, the, for his uncle again to think about the fact that I'm having to do this because I've lived a deceitful life and now I'm reaping the penalty for that. So if you are, now, now this is where it gets personal and we don't like to think like this. If you're working in a place where maybe at one time the work there was great, and you were serving there, man, time was flying by, and now you're serving there and you can't stand it, and you don't even like the, the environment in the office and all that kind of stuff, maybe you ought to ask yourself this question. Am I receiving the same treatment that I've given others in the past? Am I reaping some junk that I've thrown out there to other people before? This is not an easy lesson to learn. When I, was, um, when I was on staff at another church, and I was a youth pastor there for a long time, um, and I'm going to tell you a story about uh, some kids, and some of y'all are going to know these kids, and if you come up a- afterwards, and I'm not going to tell their names, if you come up afterwards and say, oh, was it this kid that did that to that, I'm not going to tell you if you're wrong or right, but you're probably right, okay? Those, those of you that know these people. So there was this kid that, um, now these kids at this time, they were not yet in my youth group, but they were going to be in my youth group in another year or so. But there was this one kid that always bullied this other boy. The boy was a year younger than him. He always bullied him. Every, they had RAs on Wednesday nights. Some of you grew up in a Baptist church, you know about RAs. And at RAs, every time he'd get a chance, he'd hit the kid. He, you know, he'd push them down when they'd go outside and get his clothes dirty. And he'd say, you know, cuss at them under his breath and the teacher couldn't hear. I mean, just all kind of stuff. He just was a bully. He just bullied this kid every Wednesday night at church, you know, which really makes you want to go and learn about Jesus when you know you're going to get beat up every Wednesday night, right? And so this, this younger boy, he was, he was, you know, he was getting taken advantage of and he got to where he couldn't stand it. Well, here's the thing that the bully didn't take into consideration is the younger boy had two had a set of twin brothers that were one year above him. So the same age as the age of the bully. And so there's three of them and only one of the bully, right? Well, one Wednesday night, the same stuff had happened, right? And, um, and I had actually been talking to the two older boys. They were At this time, they were in sixth grade, getting ready to be in the youth group. And uh, they said, you know, he's, he's picking on him again, and, you know, we might, we might just put an end to it tonight kind of thing. And I was like, oh, awesome, you know. So, <laughs> so I, go walking, I go walking back down to the other end of the parking lot to talk to somebody else. And as I'm walking back up, I can see in the distance, probably about as far as from here to the back of the, back of the room there, I see the bully kid come out, and once again, he, like, pushes the little kid. Well, what he didn't realize is... The two older brothers were around the corner. And when he did, when he pushed him, all of a sudden that bully had three dudes on him and they got him down and they're just beating the snot out of him right there, right there in the church park. I mean, people are coming out of prayer meeting and there's three guys on another guy beating him up, right? One of the most awesome things I've ever seen at church. And so, 
So I'm in the distance. So here's what I do. Now I'm on staff, right? So if I did what I was supposed to have done, I would have run up. I'd have started throwing kids off and saving this kid. I stood there and I watched it for a while. Because here's what I was thinking to myself. That kid, he is reaping what he has sown for a long time, right? And so before I got up there to break it up, the boy's mama comes out and she's just all going nuts, throwing kids off and screaming and hollering, all this kind of stuff. And so it was this crazy scene. But here was the thing. That boy who did that, he never picked on that other kid again. Because he began to understand, at least in that case, now, he didn't understand it in all the case of his life, but in that case, he began to understand that, you know what, if I pick on them, I'm going to get it back in return one day three times as much. And I thought about a scripture there. There's a scripture in the Old Testament that says, you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind. That sometimes, not only do you reap what you sow, but sometimes you reap more than you sow. Sometimes if you're the person that, that talks bad about people all the time, you don't end up with just one person talking bad about you, but you end up with everybody talking bad about you. Sometimes you reap more than you sow. You reap the whirlwind when all you've sown is the wind. And so this boy began to understand that. And I thought about our own lives and I thought about me. And you see, we don't want to believe that reaping and sowing applies to us. And, you know, the, the, I've, I've experienced some stuff as a pastor since I've been pastoring this church. I've experienced some stuff, and I thought, why is this happening to me? And then God would bring to mind, hey, you remember when you worked for that one pastor and you worked for that other pastor? You remember some of the th attitude you had when you were working for that guy or this other guy? And I was ex uh, what I was doing is I was reaping some of the stuff that I had sown in my past. Now, did that make it? Did that make me when that when it, those things happened to me? Did that make me say, "Whoo, this is great! I'm reaping." No, it was still terrible, but I had an understanding of what was going on. Now, listen, I want to read you a passage of scripture from Galatians, Galatians six, seven, and eight says this. I love how this starts because this is the way we believe about reaping and sowing. It says, "Do not be deceived." Because see, when it comes to this whole idea of reaping and sowing, we will deceive ourselves into think that it doesn't apply to us. But it says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. See, reaping and sowing is not just a bad thing. It's also a good thing. You reap what you sow whether it's bad or good if you sow seeds of love and you sow seeds of forgiveness and you sow seeds uh, of, of trying to understand who God is you're going to reap all of that stuff but oftentimes where it affects us is that we've spent so much time trying to do what makes us happy we've spent so much time trying to put other people down We've spent so much time trying to, to, uh, to deceive others to get what we want. And one day we will reap what we have sown. You see, it's a natural law of the universe that God has put into place. And to act like we can somehow have a natural law of the universe not apply to us, that makes about as much sense as saying, well, the natural law of gravity doesn't apply to me. That's a natural law of the universe God has put into place. And none of you are going to go up in a plane and jump out without a parachute on because you say, hey, gravity doesn't apply to me. 
I can fly, right? You're not going to do that. But we do live our lives in such a way as we treat people terrible and we think it's never going to come back on us. And see, Jacob was having to learn that he deceived his whole life. And now he had seven years to think about the fact that he was now reaping the seeds of deception that he has sown in the lives of other people. Now the sad thing about Jacob is, if you continue to read Genesis, is that doesn't stop him from being deceptive. In fact, he beats Laban out of like almost all of his flocks in a couple chapters over by, being de- by continuing to be deceptive. And too many times you and I are like Jacob. Even after we reap what we've sown, we still think, I'll do it again. It's worth it. When, um, when you think about this message today, I want you to think about where you work. Think about where you serve day after day. If you're a student, if you're a middle school, high school student, think about where you go to school because for you, that's your place of business right now. No matter how terrible it may seem, but that's your place of business. Studying and going to school is what you do for a living right now. For the rest of you, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, that's your place of business. Whether you get up every day and you drive to Greenville to go to work, or whether you have to travel and go out of town for work, wherever it is that you are, that's your place of business. And the place that you serve, your service there some days will be easy, your service there other days will be difficult. But where you serve is home for you for now because that's where God's placed you. Doesn't mean that you can't ever look for a new job. Doesn't mean that he won't one day deliver you from that place. But that's where you are right now. That's home for you. Home is where you serve. And whether the days are easy or whether the days are difficult, whether you're, you're sowing destruction from things you've done in the past or whether you're sowing good things from things you've done in the past, the key to all of it is for us to glorify God through all of it. On my best days as a pastor, I need to be glorifying God with my actions. On my worst days as a pastor, I need to be glorifying God with my actions. And the same holds true for you, whatever your job is. And if I can make sure that that's my motivation, that my motivation is not receiving a paycheck, that my motivation is not trying to have the coolest church in town that everybody wants to come to, but my motivation is that I'm going to glorify God with every single thing that I do. That's going to make the work more enjoyable And that's going to make my service here what God wants it to be. And the same thing holds true for you, wherever that might be. I'm going to say a prayer. And as I pray, I just want you to think about your situation, where you are, where God's got you. And, And as you do that, think about what kind of impact it would have in your workplace if every day you went to work saying, I'm going to make a difference for Jesus today at that place. So let's pray together. Father God, I thank you that you, you allow us to work. God, I know sometimes we are uh, not very thankful for the place we work, and sometimes we don't like it very much. But God, those of us who, who you've allowed to work, uh, we ought to thank you for that. And Lord, some days those days are easy, some days they're very difficult. But I pray that, that starting with me and each person in this room, that we would all glorify you every day at the job site. That by the words we speak, by the effort we give, by the attitude we have with others, 
that people would know that we represent you and that you are going to bless what we do, not because it's us doing it, but you're going to bless what we do because you want to use us to make a difference in this world. Thank you for, for loving us. Thank you for giving us the scripture that we can learn lessons. And Lord, even hard lessons. And help us to live by the words of the scripture this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.